So in the last episode, we talked a bit about words. Dante, in his great work, The Divine Comedy, suggests that his whole journey begins in that dark wood. That wood which he likens later on in the poem, he likens to the wood of suicides. He talks about this sense of darkness and the right path being lost and on. And we're suggesting that roughly around the early 30s is when this is occurring for Dante. We get that partly because of hints that he makes and dates that he sets up, which later correspond to his own life. And also because he has 33 as the number of cantos in three separate books. It's sort of like that's what we take away from here. So he's, he's sort of having a midlife crisis, if you will. Though it's much more intense than that, of course. Because Dante is not just having a crisis where he goes out and you know, buys a Maserati and cruises around looking for young things or something like that. He's really having a crisis of human proportions, a crisis of, of the reality of the world itself. And this is, of course, for Dante, this is after he had tried to bolster up his own political party there in his home city of Florence. And he had been defeated and he had been exiled from his his own city. And now he was living in exile. And so he'd seen all of his... He, he wrote a whole book on politics you know, and, and about the nature of politics and what makes politics worthwhile. And um, here he is now in exile and he's seeing all of the things that he thought were valuable now crumbling around him, including his poetic endeavors from earlier on. Because who reads Dante at the time? You know, nobody reads Dante. In fact, people didn't really read Dante seriously until the 19th century, which is quite startling. His, his works were kind of uh, put aside or abandoned or, or lost, if you will, for, for many, many generations. He's writing in the 14th century, 1300s. And for the 15th and the 16th and the 17th and even the 18th century, he's really not, he's not popular. Nobody seems to read him. A couple of references to him, but he's not popular. Not until the 19th century when he's revived during the Romantic movement of the early 1800s. But Dante's own life has kind of fallen apart. He's seen all of his his aspirations fall to pieces. And um, he suggests at the very beginning of his work that the only way out of this sense of crisis is to go into the very heart of the beast itself, to go into the darkness itself, to go into hell itself. He tries at first to go up to that great city, that beautiful city on the hill, to uh, to find an easy route to happiness. And this this really seems to hit home because I think most of us, when we have that crisis, we find ourselves in that dark wood and we, we find ourselves in that sense that all of our great dreams of youth, uh, dreams of our teenage and, and early 20s, those dreams are, are suddenly gone. They're lost. And we want to get back to it by an easy route. We don't, we don't want to go back by the hard route. Um, we find ourselves wanting to, to, to get back to that joyful sense that we had earlier. And Dante sees that beautiful city on the hill and he thinks, I'm just going to go there. But he's blocked by these three animals. Uh, that's a striking image. Three animals block him. There's a leopard and that she-wolf and that, that, that lion. Or I'm supposed to put them in order. There's a leopard, there's a lion, and there's a she-wolf. 
And it's startling. He says that the she-wolf plays around his feet and the lion terrifies him. And then the she-wolf is the most terrifying because she threatens to devour him. And the many critics of Dante say that all three of these beasts block him from getting to that city on the hill. And I suppose one could look at them as all evil, but you could also see them as this is one form of the Trinity that, that he brings up. And he brings up image after image of the Trinity, repeated images of the Trinity, harping on that number three. You know, Dante was very aware of, of numbers and number symbolism, uh, what's called gematria or isopsaphia in Greek, the idea that numbers have meaning. And you see it throughout his works. Frequently his work is called an Aristotelian work based off of Aristotle, the Greek philosopher. But he's really far more Platonic. He's far more based on Plato, I think, the works of Plato who wrote about Socrates than he is about Aristotle. And Plato himself was a thinker about numbers and the symbolism of numbers. And he had a real sense that numbers were a language, again, for comprehending a divine pattern of some sort. Plato himself said that the numbers are part of a great pattern. The whole world, Plato suggests, is based on numbers. What he called the, the, the pattern, the blueprint, he referred to it by the word logos. That same logos we see in the Gospel of John. If you remember in the Gospel of John, John says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And in Greek, that that term that's used for the word is logos. And logos in the Greek mind, in John's mind, was not just the word, the spoken word. It was the whole, the pattern of the whole thing. But there's an intimate connection to that pattern that the world is based on and the word or the sense of words because in many ways, I think for us as humans, words make us. If we think a thing is this way or that way, well, it becomes this way or that way. Charles Williams, the great English um, theologian, uh, if you will, uh, he, he said that uh, words define the reality around us. That if sometimes I hug my son, not because I love him, but in order to love him. And frequently we have to do a thing in order that we're able to do it rather than waiting for some divine inspiration to push us forward. And if we, if we hesitate, we end up not doing things at all. Frequently we have to proclaim the thing as doable, proclaim the thing as done. And I'm, I mean by that, but we get up in the morning and we say, this day I will triumph. Or this day I will see someone else as a person I need to help. Or this day I will accomplish this. I mean, that is what I'm talking about. By basically defining the thing, we make that thing become a reality in our minds of nothing else. When we talk about uh, something as a beautiful thing, it becomes a beautiful thing. If I call my, my students or my colleagues jerks, they become jerks. And if I call my students or my colleagues or my family members beloveds or friends or colleagues, they become friends and beloveds and colleagues, surprisingly. 
the language that we use defines the world and as as we see the world and if we we have that choice every single day to either define the world as a dark dismal horrendous place or to define the world as a beautiful bright place of potential Archbishop Fulton Sheen, who was the 20th century um, TV uh, televangelist, if you will, he, he used to say that everybody wakes up in the morning and they say either, oh God, another day. Or they say, oh God, another day. You know, and his joke was that the way that we end up choosing to see the world really does make the world become that thing. So words make us as the the song by um, the band goes, right? The weight. And so his words that make us. Now, this isn't a Pollyannish way of looking at things. I'm not, I'm not talking like you have to be Mr. Cheerful or Mrs. Cheerful all the time. It's not like Stepford Wives or something. What I'm suggesting here, and this is what Dante is getting at, is that the words themselves craft in our mind. It's sort of almost like a magic the words themselves craft in our mind a way out. They craft in our mind a way of looking at things that make it possible for us to, well, for Dante, to get the hell out. And the words then become a, a, a potential for us to make it back to that starry sky. Um, it's amazing to think about that, that, when we increase our vocabulary, we increase our perspective. And this is a very interesting premise, too. The premise is that as you increase your ability to know words, no, as you increase your, your knowledge of words, you increase your ability to know words, and you increase your ability to see the world in a different way. If you've ever seen the movie Arrival, they refer to this idea. That language ends up shaping our perception. It shapes our, our reality. And if we, if we say a thing is so, it becomes so the more we say it. Maybe not at first, we may not see it, but it does become that thing over time. Again, I'm not talking about some kind of prestidigitation where you can you know, keep saying that your cat is an automobile because he won't become an automobile. You'll be thought of as insane if you, if you go that route. But what I mean is that you look at a thing or talk about a thing using specific words, it changes the nature of the thing. There's a great poem by William Carlos Williams who writes the, the red wheelbarrow. So much depends upon a red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater beside the white chickens. A lot of people look at that poem and say, well, <laughs> that's not poetry. But we have to consider with that poem, that little poem by William Cross was like a shot in the uh, it's like a shot in the dark it's like a little it's a little shot of whiskey there William Carlos Williams is making the point that artwork transforms the mundane artwork transforms the mundane words transform the daily awfulness of life so that even something as mundane as a wheelbarrow I mean, what does that do? A wheelbarrow carries poo around. A wheelbarrow carries cow dung, dirt, dead things around all day. It's beat up. It's, it's you know, tape around the handles and, and the tires off to one side or whatever. Wheelbarrow is just this junkiest looking thing. 
but glazed with rainwater. You can imagine the sun coming through and shining on that that new rain that's just fallen on the on the wheelbarrow. And it changes the nature of that mundane thing. And for a moment, it's glistening. It's angelic, something divine. And around it are, 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 are chickens. Again, very ordinary farm animal. Kind of messy and stupid looking. I had a, a friend who used to work on a chicken farm. He says, the, those animals, they're the stupidest and the most cunning things you can imagine. And he meant that, you know, they would, they would run around when you chased them, but then they'd come and peck at you when you least expected it. In William Carlos Williams' poem, those creatures are white chickens, which with the red of the wheelbarrow glistening in the sun, they become a sort of angelic character, an angelic image. All of a sudden you have an angelic, heavenly, divine thing that's been changed by the rain. But more to the point, has been changed by the words of William Carlos Williams. A mundane object is transformed by the use of art, by the poetry, by the words. And that's what Dante's getting at from the very beginning here. How will he find his way out of that dark wood? How do any of us find our way out of that dark wood? We do so by words, by the crafting, the artwork, the labor of making the world beautiful by how we speak about it and how we deal with it on a daily basis.